0: Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Linnert, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Allison Williams. Allison Williams, known as the Law Firm Mentor, is the owner of two successful companies. She is founder of Williams Law Group, a full-service family law firm, where she is fellow of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, is certified by the New York Supreme Court as matrimonial law attorney, and is certified by National Board of Trial Advocacy and Family Law. After taking Williams Law Group from startup to a multi-million dollar business in 3.5 years, she created a second business, Law Firm Mentor, where she provides business coaching services for solo and small law firm attorneys, helping them grow their revenues, crush chaos in business, and make more money. The business was born out of her success in business, including winning the Law Firm 500 Award, ranking 14th of the fastest growing law firms in the nation, being named a Stevie Award finalist for Female Entrepreneur of the Year in 2017 and 2018, being voted as NJBIZ's top 50 women in business, and designated one of the top 25 leading women entrepreneurs and business owners. The motto of Law Firm Mentor is, hashtag never stop growing. An international speaker in the field of child abuse and neglect, evidence, and trial practice, Ms. Williams has appeared on the Katie Couric Show and has published articles in the Huffington Post addressing issues of child maltreatment. She has been selected among her peers as one of the top 100 super lawyers in New Jersey and has been voted by her clients as one of the New Jersey's best lawyers for families. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. Thank you so much
1: for having me, Dr. Leonard. I'm really excited to be here.
0: Yeah, so you started out just being an attorney and then you went into all this you know business stuff and now you're helping people and um, you know one of the things you speak on is is dear to my heart and that is you know keeping our children safe and protected. So thank you so much for what you're doing there. Thank you. So um, let's just start out so people can get to know you. Tell us about you, you know, maybe where you grew up, how you started out, you know, why did you decide to be an attorney and how you did so well that first three years? Uh,
1: Sure. So, um, you know, kind of starting out, I will be very candid that I decided to become an attorney for not the best reasons. Uh, My reasons were really centered on myself. I wanted money, power, status. I wanted to feel important. I wanted to feel valued. And I find that actually that's a common thread that runs through attorneys. We often don't express that, but oftentimes we come from some type of wound internally that says, I will matter when I arrive at, and I'm going to show people and I'm going to prove to the world that, you know, that I matter. So that's why I became an attorney and because I was zealously pursuing this feeling of achievement that comes from having that title, having the status of attorney and and then being successful in your career, I was very driven in my career. So became a family law attorney in 2003, was a family law attorney, still am, for the entirety of my legal career and uh, fell into doing child abuse and neglect work uh, when someone walked into my office. Had a case that nobody else knew anything about. And I was the youngest the low man on the total pole. And was told, here, go figure it out. So I did. Fell in love with that practice area because of the ability to help people. And it, for the first time, it started to be about others and not about myself. So built my career in that. And at some point, my career had burgeoned. I had uh, an independent book of business of about $500,000 in personal referrals coming in. And I went to my boss and said, okay, well, you know, I'm bringing you half a million dollars. I kind of like a title other than associate. Uh, so we need to make that happen. And I got, oh, okay. Let me talk to my other partners and get back to you. And when he got back to me, the answer was, well, we're going to take it under advisement. We're going to think about it. And I thought, okay, I'm more successful than just about everybody here. So this is not the place for me. So left, started my own business. Uh, me and 43 clients picked up and went down the street. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I a lawyer and you know i know how to take people's money and i know how to uh pay bills so like you just put those things together and poof you have a business and it wasn't quite that simple (laughs) so i went from being a 60 hour a week lawyer to being a 60 hour a week lawyer plus another 30 on top of it in business administration hiring firing organizing negotiating leases managing contracts you know researching services and and i was absolutely exhausted and I just, I, you know, trying to put all of it together was just a nightmare. So made a few bad hires and finally said, you know what? I'm just gonna be my own secretary for a while. I just need the peace. <laughs> Even if I have to work harder, I'd rather work harder by myself than, than less hard with someone that causes me the stress of, of potentially um, putting my clients at risk, putting my reputation at risk. So I had, a, I had let go all my staff and I had decided that I was gonna be a secretary in the morning, a lawyer in the middle of the day, and a secretary again <laughs> at night. So, you know, I kind of worked the 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. shift on top of a 45-minute commute to and from my office. Wow. And that was a little exhausting. Yes. Yeah. Did that for about six weeks before I was at the point of complete total breakdown. I mean, I had to drink uh, five cups of coffee just to stay awake. And I was doing that several times a day. I mean, the fact that I was walking around like this didn't seem to matter. <laughs> Jittery energy. I was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, it's just part of the you know. I'll I'll work hard and eventually I'll get there, right? I'll get to the point where it's easy." And it never got there. And in fact, what happened was one day I had um, I had a full Friday calendar that was on Thursday adjourned, various different issues, people not available, courts not available. So my Friday came back to me, and I was so excited on Thursday. I thought, "I'm going to sleep late. I'm going to sleep till seven o'clock in the morning." And I am going to leave the office at seven o'clock at night. I'm going to give myself the freedom of a 12 hour workday, which for me at that time was a light day. (laughs) That was the plan. And I wanted to get a few things off of my desk late in the night on Thursday so that I could enjoy my Friday and continue to work. And probably eight, nine o'clock said, all right, I got enough done. I'll come in in the morning and got in the car. So pent up on the eager energy of getting home to my bed to have a full night of sleep that I got there a little early, fell asleep in the car, and uh, I woke up about a centimeter away from a guardrail. Oh,
0: wow.
1: (laughs) So yeah, yeah. um, And I'm very honest with people that I did not move the car. Uh, You know, I woke up as the car was jerking to the other side of the road. That was, you know, God saving my life. And I hadn't at that time figured out why he saved my life, but he saved my life. So I kind of went through this spasm of anger of why are you doing this to me? And why, is, why am I being punished? And I'm just, I'm just trying to do the best that I can. I'm just trying to work hard, you know, woe is me, like a lot of victim mindset. And just decided I didn't want to do it anymore. So I called as many lawyers as I could in the places that I really wanted to work and offered myself up, got, a, got an offer for a partnership and was going to sign the papers where I essentially said, I can't do this. (laughs) I started this business for some reason. I never wanted to own a business. So why did I get drawn to this now? And there must be some reason. So decided to keep my law firm, realized that I can't do it on my own. So I looked for help, found business coaches and started to work with um, first administrative coaching and then mindset coaching on a higher level. And really just optimized, not just my business, but my life. My life became remarkably better and I started to enjoy my life again. I had gone through a very dark period. I'd gone through a very severe depression. I'm a recovering alcoholic. So I'd gone through that part of my life where life was just bearable. Mm -hmm. And when I got out of depression and, and got sober, life became livable. And I was afraid for it to get too happy because I was afraid that that would be God's signal to knock me back down again. So I said, all right, I won't be happy but I won't be miserable, I'll be okay, and I'll get through this thing called life. And for the first time when I started working with coaches, I didn't just live and exist, I started to breathe and fulfill and create and enjoy, and life became a passion, and it became something that I wanted to pour myself into. And through that, I realized that I not just benefited from coaching, but I had a gift for it, because I had already spent most of my career teaching, training, organizing, I've been on many stages, you know, you read my bio, I've been on TV, I've been in the news, like, you know, so I've done the things of how to educate people, and I wanted to facilitate that through a coaching process, so I learned how to coach, and then decided to share that gift with people through coaching lawyers, so that they could get out of the misery that many of them feel when they own their own business, and start to enjoy some of the fruits of their labor, the way that I learned how to. Beautiful, so
0: wow. You really came through quite a, a journey and um, and now you're helping other people. So do you still, you still have your law firm where you're helping families and then yeah. you're helping other attorneys?
1: Yeah, so right now I'm standing in my law firm uh, and Williams Law Group is still my baby. You know, we're located in Short Hills, New Jersey. Everything about me is licensed in New Jersey. I did uh, pass the New York bar and, and became licensed in New York but I'm certified by the New Jersey Supreme Court in matrimonial law. I practice matrimonial law and I really serve in the function of my law firm of, as a CEO. So in that role, I'm more of a mentor, a guide, and of course the, the supreme manager, if you will, of this entity. But I also, you know, it only requires five to 10 hours of my week now based on how I have structured it and systematized it. And I teach those lessons to other business owners across the country.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about systems. Because systems took you from, what, 7 a.m. to 9 p.m. work days <laughs> to five or six hours now?
1: Yeah, so systems are what I consider to be the the unsexy, sexy part of business, okay? I love a spreadsheet like nobody's business, and I know that many people don't. But the systems of running a law firm, and not just writing down what you do every day, like a lot of people think of that as... If I just, whatever I do, I document it, I have created a system and that's not exactly true. So you have various different parts of a business. You have your marketing systems, you have your sales, you have your people, you have your your service, what you provide. So in a law firm, that's the legal work that you do. You have the facility in which you deliver that, whether it's virtual or brick and mortar, and you have the money that is generated and how it's managed overarching. So you have these different parts of your business and each part of them touches other parts. So when you're marketing, you're generating leads for your sales department. And if you don't have that in sync, then you'll be driving a lot of people to the business, but they won't become clients. You won't have enough money. You know, ultimately your business will wither and die. If you bring in too much, right? You start selling like a rock star and you don't have the people to be able to do the work, then you're going to run the risk of committing malpractice or having a grievance because you're not serving your clients. So you have to be looking at all of it from kind of a helicopter's view and each part of it needs to run on its own, taking into account all the other parts. Mm-hmm. And the only way that I have found to be able to do this, and I've talked I've, I've talked about systems in many different places and, and talked to other people who teach systems, it's not just, brain dumping and writing down your thoughts on how things should be done. It's really first documenting what is being done and then it's re-engineering it and creating a culture within your people where your people are engineering their jobs as a part of the system of their department in totality so that what ends up happening is you don't just come up with the way we do things, you, you are always recreating the best way. And everyone then learns that way who's doing the system so that people don't have to think anymore. What do I do next? It becomes automatic Mm -hmm. and you start to train in the automaticity of your business. And then your brain power gets to be preserved so that you can put it to what really matters, which is the legal service that you're providing to people. So it saves time, it saves money, it saves energy, it saves effort, you know, it just creates a better work environment, a better work experience, a better customer experience, and it creates more uh, financial resources for the business owner and for the people that work in the business. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, so I have several questions about that. So, um, how do you get people's buy in to do this and how do you keep them up to date and what they should be doing because I know sometimes people have these manuals. They have all this stuff. This is the way you're supposed to do it, but nobody looks at the manual. Everybody says we've always done it this way, so we're just gonna—they're just gonna do it with the way they want to. H- how do you get the buy-in, and how do you keep everything moving in the direction you want it to move in?
1: Yeah, so buy-in is all about selling, you know. And one of the things that I, I teach lawyers how to sell, and it, a lot of people when they hear the word sell, they think I'm convincing somebody of something, but that is not what you are doing. You are figuring out what matters to that person, and you're offering them a solution to the problem. So you have to first get people to recognize that there is a problem. And then you have to get them invested in solving the problem for themselves, Mm -hmm. not for your business, not for you, right? It's not about you. We are all self-motivated as human beings. And so what is it that a person would value about solving this problem? For most people, it's I would like to not have to spend so much time on an activity. I would like to have more free time to be able to breathe in between tasks at work. I would like not to have chaos. I would like to be able to take off without coming back to a pile of work that has amassed in my absence that is going to overwhelm me when I come back from vacation or sick time or what have you. I would like to be able to enjoy the work more. I would like to be able to feel like the work is moving fluidly across my desk and I'm not like in a haze crazy working like a slave, but I'm also not bored and not able to get work done because my mind is going everywhere else because there's only so much to do, right? So you have to get people's buy-in by virtue of giving them something to buy into. And then keeping it going becomes a matter of involving people in owning their job. And so this is something that I tell people, uh, I speak about this a lot about company culture, that if you look at studies about what, what employees want in work, right? We, we now know that, Most industry uh, reports will suggest that about 70% of the American workforce is disengaged at work. So that means they're there for the paycheck. So how do you get people that are not there for the paycheck but actually care about the work? You can't convince someone to care about their work. They have to have something internal, their, their intrinsic motivation, married to the extrinsic motivation, which you can control. You can control what types of incentives you offer people. And put those two together so that the person is moving in the direction of what they enjoy about work. And what, what we have found in terms of what people need in order to get there is really autonomy. They really want freedom. They don't want to be micromanaged. They don't want to have someone dictating to them, you will do it this way because I said so. So you have to get people first to understand where they're making contributions and you have to get them to want to make contributions on a regular basis. Now that sounds intellectually simple, but it's not easy because a lot of lawyers, because of how highly regulated we are, we are very policed, if you will, we're policed by each other. We have an ethical obligation to do that. We have authorities that regulate us in terms of what, we, what will have us risk our license and so we have to really be cognizant of that. And as a result, we often become control freaks. So it's got to be done right. We can't, we can't miss dotting an I or crossing a T, and I can't just give it over to you. So I am not suggesting that you abdicate to your staff, but you have to delegate to them. And then you have to solicit their feedback. You have to have them give suggestions. You have to give them an opportunity to contribute because people, especially people that work in this field, do not want to simply be order takers or people who follow instructions. They want to make a difference. And the more of a difference that they're able to make, the more valuable they are to your business, the more that they will perceive that and your gratitude for that will start to grow their resources. So they'll start to look for ways that they can contribute. They'll start to look to solve problems before they arise. And that then creates a lot of free time for the owner because the owner's not having to solve all the problems. The owner is not even aware of all the problems. They become aware of it after the solution is created.
0: That's a wonderful thing to be, (laughs) to have everything taken care of for you. That is, that is just wonderful. So as far as just kind of, uh, I guess you'd call it team building. Do you have a time like once a week or once a month where you actually get together and everyone talks or contributes or.
1: Yeah, so there's lots of different ways that you can do this, and uh, it in, in depends on the size of your firm. So if you have a fully built-out department and everything, you have a marketing department, a sales department, legal team, the legal team in different practice areas, if you have all of that commoditized or, or broken into pieces, you can have your department's meeting. I certainly recommend that you have lawyers and administrative team meeting no less than, you know, no less than once a week. They need to be able to fluently exchange information about cases so that cases are moving and so that you're looking for opportunities to give the best service possible to your clients. But even beyond that, as a firm, I highly recommend that the firm get together no less than once a month on the low end. So depending on what you're trying to accomplish, if you're in high growth mode, you need to be meeting more frequently because you need to always be juicing the energy of the people that are there, that we're in this together, we're creating, and you need to get people excited about that. But just in terms of cohesion and keeping your culture going, meeting once a month is a very good way of streamlining activity. And what you find is when you create a very small window of time where people are going to have the floor, that time becomes much more productive than if you are just casually stopping by people's desks and chatting on a regular basis. Because chatting does create some level of community, but it's not concerted activity. So right now, a lot of law firms are in virtual space. So many of us have not been able to return to our physical offices or choose not to because of the pandemic. Uh, We're recording this in October of 2020. (laughs) So there is still a global pandemic going on, despite what certain people have to say about that. Um, And so a lot of law firms are not physically all together. And so if you're virtual, you can do the exact same thing. You know, in my office, we have a Zoom meeting once a month. We call it the state of the firm. Mm -hmm. And we come in and we check in with each other. How is everyone doing you know what is going on what projects are you working on what successes are you having we celebrate our successes on a regular basis but we do it all together in one space as a firm when we come together for that mass meeting and then you can also glue your culture together with little activities that you can do that don't take up a whole lot of time but that can keep people smiling so i have a business coach for the law firm name is ivy slater and she gave me a wonderful suggestion that we have implemented that i just love it's called the morning motivation. Mm-hmm. So, in rotating order, we we rotate by our first names. Uh, everyone takes a turn in sequence to have their floor in the morning and post into our Slack channel something that would motivate them. So it can be music, poetry, pictures, uh, you know, limericks, uh, riddles, uh, you know, fun games. And we post this, and then we in- engage with each other. So we have to stop and have a thought about what, else, what someone else's positive moment is. And we, we oftentimes will share that and then people start sharing stories. And so we've had, we've had everything in from someone posted their wedding picture to uh, favorite music to funny cat videos and you would think, okay, this is silly. What's it doing for business? What it really is doing is gelling us that we all have common thoughts and common experiences as people. Mm-hmm. And when you relate to people on something that's completely not related to work, but that shows their humanity and connects you with your humanity, you, you gel with that person as a part of a common infrastructure separate and apart from your work. And it really does make for a stronger community and environment and a workforce.
0: Yeah, I believe it would and that is wonderful. wonderful that you're doing that. And um, yeah, I was going to ask you when you're actually in like a business type meeting, I know I'm in uh, the medical profession. So a lot of times, you know, the, the support people who work with me, they're a little bit shy to actually speak up or if they have ideas, they don't want to really say them because they want to hear what I have to hear, (laughs) I have to say, or whoever's in charge. So how do you get it? um, an open forum where, you know, your, your person who is, um, I don't know who is in your uh, firm, but you know, the people who are not as much in authority, like on the, an attorney, um, how do you get them to speak and give, show their ideas? Okay. So
1: it is very challenging to do that for the first time when you put all of the, I'll refer to them as status people, right? Mm -hmm. All of the status people and all of the lower status people in one pool. Mm -hmm. The easiest way to start to build that is at the micro level. So one-to-one relationship. So the person that you directly supervise, you as their supervisor engender that conversation by constantly soliciting their feedback. Mm -hmm. Now, the part of soliciting feedback that is most challenging for people that are in status positions is that you cannot judge the feedback of what you're hearing and you cannot be critical of it. So you have to get into the habit of soliciting it and just letting it be there. And if there's something wonderful that you hear, you can say to the person, "Oh my God, I hadn't thought about that before. That's excellent. Tell me more." And you want to constantly reaffirm. And for the people that don't naturally give praise and positive feedback, I tell them put it on your calendar. <laughs> put a reminder on your calendar to give an add-a-boy, add-a-girl, you know, on a schedule. And don't make it a schedule like every Monday at nine o'clock you're going to say add a boy to somebody but put it on a schedule that's frequently enough that you are reminded to find something positive about the person that you're trying to build up into the role of giving you feedback. Now, everyone has to do that. So that means people that are very resistant to it, people that are very naturally praising, you have to have everybody on board with this. But when that becomes a culture, then the people who are not necessarily at the highest echelon of a business are able to come into a public space and already have experience with soliciting that and and giving out that feedback. Now, once you put them all together, there might be further resistance because now I'm used to giving you Dr. Leonard my feedback. I'm not used to doing it in front of Dr. Smith, Dr. Jones, Dr. Jackson. So the community, when you come together has to solicit feedback and you prompt people based on feedback they've already given. So you can say to your person, Um, Stephanie, you had a great suggestion last week about the such and such. Why don't you share that with everybody now, the way that you did with me? So that they then start that process and then invite others to also bring their support person into the fold by reminding everybody that they had a really great idea. And then you'll start to see that the exchange of ideas is happening naturally because we are in the habit of listening to feedback, not judging it, not being critical, listening to it. And if other people agree that it's a good idea, then they start to give that positive reinforcement so that other people feel that it's a safe space to actually share their thoughts, even though they're not in the status role.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. So, um, you built your business quite quickly to a multi million dollar practice. How did you market that? How did you make that happen?
1: So, you know, in law firm mentor, I teach this to, to the lawyers that we work with and, you know, really growing a business quickly is about getting more of what you are selling into your door, right? So it's about marketing and sales, very simply. And marketing is about putting out to the, out to the marketplace whatever it is that you are offering and you have to do that in a very strategic way. So what I find most lawyers do is either they don't like marketing or they like one or two things. And so they do those one or two things, right? So they might enjoy networking or they might, uh, they might love putting pretty graphics on their website. So they kind of make that into their pet project and they say that I'm marketing. <laughs> but the reality is marketing is never a one and done. Mm-hmm. So what I always tell people is every piece of content you create should have anywhere from five to 10 additional uses instanti- instantaneously available from the first creation. So for instance, right now, you and I are recording in Zoom a podcast episode. So what are the uses for that? Well, the first thing is we're going to use it as a podcast. It can go into the various different podcast platforms. That's one thing. It can go on YouTube, another thing. You can put it on your website. That's the third thing. You can blast it out in your email list uh, to people, letting people know about the episode. That's another thing. You can send it out uh, with a link on a postcard to local businesses that would need the information. Third, you know, fifth thing, sixth thing, I think that's six things. Um, You can have it transcribed. And then when you have it transcribed, you've got social media posts, you've got email marketing, you've got blogs, you have articles, you have many different uses for one piece of content. So if you look for a way to get to five to 10 different uses of every piece of content, then five pieces of content is not five pieces of content, it's 25 to 50 pieces of content. And if you generate five pieces of content in a month, you have generated 50 to you know, 25 to 50 pieces of content every month. That takes you know, half, a quarter of a year, you've already generated hundreds of pieces of content, even though you're only producing five pieces of content in a month. So if I ask the average lawyer, how do you feel about the idea of producing hundreds of pieces of content every quarter their eyes kind of bug out, right? <laughs> I don't have time for that, I'm running a practice, I'm, I'm in court, I've got, I've got X, Y, and Z. But if I said to you, how do you feel about producing five pieces of content in a month, and we can break that down so that you do it all in one day, can you devote half of a day to creating five pieces of content? Yeah, I, I think I could do that, right? It becomes more manageable. Mm-hmm. So you've got to create a machine of your marketing so that your marketing as you are producing you are not just producing those five pieces of content, but you are cross promoting them, you are repurposing them and you are using them in multiple places. So the blog article I wrote last month becomes a Facebook article of next month, which becomes the LinkedIn article of the next month. And then that 25 to 50 pieces of content becomes multi-uses. It becomes you know, three to five uses off of that. So 75 to 150 pieces of content from that five pieces of content in a month. And that's how it spreads and grows. And you'd be surprised. People don't actually, they read the content, they enjoy the content in the moment, but they don't remember the exact words that you use. So if I read your blog article in January, I'm not going to remember when I see your Facebook post in, in March, when that same message resonates with me, mm-hmm. oh, isn't this the exact same thing that she wrote about in a blog article two months ago, right? right. So it's about building out that content calendar and creating it on, on a loop, if you will. Then when you get a lot of people knowing about you, you have to learn how to have engaging sales conversations, which is not about telling them how smart you are or where you went to law school or that you know the judge. Like those things matter to a very small portion of people who are narcissistic status oriented people. Most people are concerned about themselves. They're not concerned about you. They're meeting with you in your office. They already presume you have a law degree. They already assume that you know how to practice law. And they have some idea, some thought that you have the ability to solve their problem. So your role in the consultation is to help them see that you can help them. And that's all about asking them powerful questions Mm -hmm. so that you can get to the heart of what it is they desire, what it is that is stopping them from getting it, and how if they don't solve this problem now with your facilitated assistance, their situation is going to get worse. And when you make the conversation about them, you help them solve their problem just by thinking about it differently. And they immediately inure to your benefit. They see you as the problem solver, they see you as the source, and it's a lot easier than to create a business relationship.
0: Yeah, you guys, it sounds like a law doctor. I mean, that's what doctors do. We say, what's wrong? Why are you here, (laughs) what's going on? And you know, once you find out what's going on, you can definitely help them, so. Oh my goodness. That is so wonderful. And um, so was most of your business built on social media? Is there, um, or is it more when you were out speaking and people got to know you? Um, I know when I had a private practice where I got my best patients, I, I had a therapy center. So where I got my best patients was when I went out and spoke. When I went out and spoke, I got a lot of people coming in and people who were already sold, if you will, yeah, so you didn't have to do much. They were ready to sign up when they walked in the door. So how did you get most of your people?
1: So ironically, I built my uh, my lineage before social media became a thing and before uh, digital marketing became the, the explosive industry that it is now. And it, it was in part very much what you're what you're talking about. So I love being on stage. And getting in front of people uh, is not just about getting in front of people who are your potential clients, because as a lawyer, you may or may not have the opportunity to fill a room to get in front of your potential clients, even though some industries, it's a lot easier than others, like estate planning, family law to a certain degree. Uh, But some industries, not so much. Most criminals don't say, hey, I'm going to go and hear the criminal defense lawyer that's talking down the street for the (laughs) next time I commit a crime. (laughs) Right? So you have to be looking for people who can refer you those people. And that means not going in front of your peers. Right? If I'm a a personal injury attorney, I don't want to speak to other personal injury attorneys and educate them on how to do what I do. I want to get in front of people who can refer personal injury clients to me. So you have to think about who the, who the market is and being able to speak in front of them. So that was one very effective way. And I was very lucky that I focused on child abuse and neglect because I got in front of family law attorneys as a family law attorney. So they knew me as a member of the crowd, if you will. And then I offered them something that they otherwise did not have and otherwise did not know how to do, which was child abuse representation, how to handle those cases, deal with the state, represent children, represent parents. And then they started to see me as a resource. So they came to me as a resource. And as soon as they got on the phone with me, I'd say, okay, uh, you can dabble at this and maybe your your client's child will come home and maybe not. Or you can send me the client. I can represent them because that's what I know and love. And I can send them back to you at the end of the day. So then we had a reciprocal relationship of, I stayed in my lane. They knew that I was not going to take their client right? So I return the client back to them at the end and say, you have a wonderful matrimonial attorney, he or she is going to protect you in that area, I'm going to protect you here. And there was a win-win there. So you have to look for those opportunities. But in terms of just the marketing piece of it, I actually created my own little homemade WordPress blog before blogging was a thing. So uh, I changed jobs in 2009. And back in 2009, you could make a homemade WordPress blog for I don't know, $1.99 for you to buy the URL. And and what I found was I just needed a place to kind of put all of my writings. Because I would write about child abuse and neglect more from an intellectual release perspective than marketing. I wasn't using it for that purpose. But I started sharing with the bar my thoughts on, on things and articles. And then I started finding that people were finding it. So I I created this blog, almost like a portal of information, and the public started finding it, and then they would comment like, oh, you know, you had this experience in court. This is what's going on in my case. Can you help me? And many times, I couldn't help them. Either they were too far away from where I was willing to practice, or they didn't have the money, but I could give them support, right? I could... I could give them resources. I could refer them to what to read. I could, I could tell them the questions to ask. I could say, I'm not your attorney. I can't give you legal advice, but from a mental health perspective, I highly recommend that you talk to your therapist about, you know, X, Y, Z. And what I would find is, you know, I would tell people how to protect themselves when they're seeking information and say, listen, don't make a public record of the fact that you're asking me X because the state could find that, (laughs) you know? So I would private message people like, you know, here's how you can get some emotional support. Here's how you can get help with your substance abuse problem. Here's how you can um, create a stronger relationship with your children if they're in placement. And then I kind of became like the beloved source, even though I wasn't representing the people. So I got to do what I loved, which was help people with these issues in an indirect way and then the word spread. So then they would refer other people to read my blog so that they could get the support and resources that they needed. And then people who could afford me would start to find it and say, oh, I see all these all these people coming here and posting comments and I see all these articles. So then I started to do it intentionally. I had a rule for myself. Every morning I'd wake up, I would not allow myself to get up and go to the bathroom until I rolled over, <laughs> grabbed my phone, and put something quick in there about child abuse and neglect. So every morning I had a rule, okay? The first thing I wanna do when I wake up is go to the bathroom. I would not allow that to happen unless I got my comment on my blog. And I would do that every day. So five days a week minimum, I didn't do it on the weekend, but five days a week, I would put that content out there and people would find me. And over a relatively short period of time, I started that in 2009 when I first moved to what was then my, my last job before I became an entrepreneur. And I probably kept it up for about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And that generated somewhere in the range of over that year and a half, a couple hundred thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. So not a small amount of money relative to what it was designed to do. It was designed to get me awareness and, and traction. And then it just happened to also generate clients for me at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So in you're in your talking about the child abuse piece. And I would like to go there for a moment. So, um, Let's say you suspect, you know, a child is being abused. What is, what step should we take?
1: So are you asking as a member of the public or are you asking like as a legal professional?
0: As a member of the public, because I'm not a legal professional. (laughs) Okay, okay. Uh,
1: So most states will have a mandatory reporting requirement and mandatory reporting is not limited to professionals such as yourself. It is also inclusive of the public at large. So the first thing I would do is educate yourself on what your obligation is to report. Um, because if you have an obligation to report and you don't, in many, in many cases, not frequently, I don't see this used a whole lot, but you could be prosecuted. Now, in terms of just what you see, if you are seeing something that you believe could be child abuse and neglect, my, my moral thought is that you should err on the side of placing a call uh, rather than letting that stay but placing a call does not necessarily mean calling CPS or Child Protective Services. So if there is someone who is in close proximity to the child who is not the alleged abuser and you believe that something is going on, approaching someone who's in a position to be able to detect, ask questions and asking questions in the appropriate way. Um, If you just go up and start asking questions of a child, you could further the harm, you could uh, shut them down uh, so they don't disclose there are very specific techniques that are used in terms of how professionals get children to disclose abuse, uh, especially things that are more sensitive like sexual abuse. Uh, but you wanna make sure that you don't necessarily just go in there guns blazing and start asking questions because you could ultimately taint evidence and you could you know, send a child into further hiding the fact that they had been abused. But once you have identified who a support person could be, it could be The parent of the child, if that person is not believed to be the abuser, could be a school professional, could be a mental health professional. If having that conversation doesn't give you the concern alleviated, meaning you don't believe that uh, that person's going to protect the child, at that point, then you might want to go ahead and reach out to CPS.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that approach. Yeah, because, you know, you don't want to, you definitely don't want to report someone who it appears that they're doing something and they're not because then that puts them into a spin and they could get their child taken away. So there's always that kind of gray area.
1: Yeah. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, a lot of people think that if they believe that a child is being abused in a certain way and they place that call, that that will be the sum total of the CPS investigation, but that is definitely not true. So if, you you know, if I believe that a child is being physically abused, maybe I see a child with a mark or a, a handprint or something that suggests a form of forcible contact on the child and I'm like, oh my God, this child is being physically abused. CPS will come out, they will investigate that specific claim, but they will also investigate everything else about the home. So they will do a risk assessment to determine is there adequate provision in the home? Does the child have sleeping arrangements that are appropriate to their age and gender? Mm-hmm. Uh, is there food in the home, you know, etc. cetera and they will also ask they have to speak to the children uh, and they have to see any nonverbal children so they'll ask questions about that and you know if upon seeing a child the child discloses something that suggests that maybe maybe they're not being physically abused but maybe there's domestic violence in the home uh, or maybe there is um, maybe uh, there's medical neglect maybe the child hasn't been to the doctor in several years uh, maybe the child is not uh, up on immunizations. A lot of the, a lot of those things can come out from just things that children say that will ask them, or lead a professional to ask more questions and get more data. So you can't just once you place that call, you have no control over how big it gets, how much time it takes, what types of inquiries there are. So you really want to be cautious about calling CPS, mm-hmm. and you know if there's any way to avoid that, I always say. Try to go to support people around the child to see if you can make sure that that child is OK. And there are typically a lot of resources that you can get to before you have to call CVS. Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that's really, really helpful. So I want to change gears for a minute. What gives you the most happiness and fulfillment in your life at this point?
1: So. I- ironically, you know, I am very work-centered. I have always been a workaholic. I I call myself a recovering workaholic. (laughs) Um, And the part of my life right now that gives me the most joy is really, I love business coaching and I love seeing lawyers transform. And the transformation isn't necessarily in making more money and having more free time. Those are the things that I promote that I help lawyers secure in their business, but it is who you have to become in order to run a more successful business in order to lead people you have to evolve out out of a lot of dysfunctional patterns that we don't even see in ourselves Mm -hmm. but those dysfunctional patterns that make us very effective at lawyering such as arguing needing to be right being very competitive um, you know being authoritative a lot of those tendencies that can make us successful in lawyering you have to shift and evolve out of to be effective as a leader and as a manager who creates a workplace where people actually wanna be. And seeing that transformation to me is one of the most gratifying things in the world because when you evolve into that person, your life tends to improve, not just your business. Because you can't be the super rock star leader, you know, emotionally intelligent person at work and then come home and be a completely different person. We can't turn ourselves on and off. So when they evolve in their business, they are also evolving in their life, which tends to improve relationships. It tends to uh, increase life satisfaction. It tends to orient thought toward the positive as opposed to the negative. And people just start to have a better experience of life, whether they do continue to grow a large business or not, their life improves. And so that's the part that that's really the heart-centered helping people that is, is what I think is, is God's calling on my life. Mm-hmm.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. And So when you were talking about that, it just made me think about that mindset piece. So when you're working with people, do you work with them on mindset or do you tell them, hey, you need to get a coach to work with you on mindset? Because, you know, that competitive, gotta win driven personality, sometimes it's hard to switch back and forth.
1: Yeah. So a lot of what we do is based in mindset. Um, it's not all that we do, because there is some. There is definitely coaching around how to create systems in business, how to hire the right people, how to organize and lead, you know, how to market, how to sell. There is a lot of teaching involved in this particular industry of coaching, based on what it is. But the mindset piece is really what is going to help you evolve into creating what you want, because what I find is is our biggest hangup is, you know, we're always the bottlenecks in our business. So, you know, whenever you look at the employee, I always say, well, who hired them? Mm -hmm. You know, oh, this person can't do anything right. Well, who's leading them? Mm -hmm. Well, this person doesn't know how to, you know, they're not following my instructions. Well, who's instructing them? (laughs) You know, and, and then when you bring it back to the person and they start to change themselves, that doesn't mean that there's no accountability on the other side. That doesn't mean that you are removing the, their role for them to be responsible for themselves. But if you take 100% personal responsibility for yourself, and you rise to become a person who uh, attracts at a higher level, you're, I don't want to go too far into the woo woo and start talking about the law of vibration and, and, um, and the law of subconscious momentum and how we put out and we get back in, in the world what we put out. But That is a a very real thing. And when people start to understand that, when they start to understand how they can manage their thoughts and manage their feelings Mm -hmm. and how they are not just beholden to whatever thought comes into their mind, they can make a choice to either adopt it or reject it and then reframe it. When people start to recognize that, they start to see how there are solutions to problems that they didn't recognize before. Mm -hmm. And they also start to reframe problems as opportunities. Mm -hmm. And that's where growth really starts to happen because, oh my God, my favorite employee just quit as a, as opposed to, oh my God, I'm so happy that my favorite employee is going on to something that serves them. And now I can step up even more in my business by getting someone with even more talent skill mm-hmm. and, and who's, who's a better fit for us. So you start to reframe instantaneously, and then you don't get, die. Dy- you know, you don't get stuck in the weeds and in the, in the mud of the problem, the, the struggle, the hustle, the things that make the business tiring. And frankly, the reason why a lot of law- lawyers just say, all right, I'll have a very small business. I'll have a couple hundred thousand. You know, I have a six-figure income. That's good enough. I, you know, I work 50 hours a week instead of 70. So I've got it under control. Um, it's, it's okay, right? They start to default into what they can accept and tolerate versus what they truly desire.
0: Oh, that's so important. It is so important. It's all how you look at it. All how you look at it. Yeah, so um, I'm sure there's people now who would just love to um, take advantage of the things you have to offer. Uh, definitely some attorneys and probably other business people. So how can people find you? Do you have a website? What's just go ahead and tell us your website and you know what services you offer now?
1: Sure, so our website is lawfirmmentor.net. So you can find us there and learn more about the various different programs that we have. Uh, But in essence, the way that I approach business coaching is I have created integrated programs that combine different modalities of coaching. So there's accountability calls that are in every single program that we have, which means you're going to get on the phone with a call with a coach every single week, whether you're in our lowest tier program or our highest tier program. And then on top of that, we layer additional services. So at our lowest level, we add group coaching, All of the programs will have group coaching. One step up from that, we add private coaching. And then at the highest level, we add CEO coaching. So that as the business is being built and being streamlined in different processes, the manager owner of the company is also learning how to be a leader and learning how to extricate him or herself from the day-to-day stuff of managing the managers to really being a leader. And all of our programs also include access to our business retreats. So I'm a big proponent of uh, kind of the trifecta of learning, so visual, uh, audio, and kinesthetic. And in order for you to have a true experience, you need to do something more than passively consume information off of a course that you buy online. You need to see it, you need to hear it, and you need to work with it. Mm -hmm. So we have retreats that we offer that go into the weeds and all of the deep details of the mindset and strategy of marketing, sales, people, and systems. One each on each of those four topics. And those are included in all of our annual programs. And then separate from the annual programs, we also do private coaching. So people that uh, just wanna have an experience of working one-to-one with a person, we do offer that through Law Mentor as well. I have a team of coaches and uh, full support. So you get the flavor of multiple people so you can see you know, what works and different ways of framing things based on the different talents of the people we have here.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on the podcast today and for sharing all your wisdom. And I'm sure especially people in the law business, they're have their ears perked thinking, oh, maybe they, they feel more inspired to to build more or to actually go for their desires. So thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. I very much enjoyed it. And I hope that your audience gets something out of it.
0: Thanks. So I have one last question before we complete. Sure. What is your best advice on living an incredible, amazing life?
1: My best advice for living an amazing, incredible life. Gosh, there's so many things that I would say contribute to that. But I would say it is simply to be open. Be open to the possibility that the way that you are thinking about your business and your life could be wrong. That necessarily say that you are wrong, but the way that you're thinking about it could be flawed. And if it's not ultimately serving you, if it's not, if your belief system is not getting you what you want, be willing to let it go and be willing to adopt a belief system of people that are more successful, who have more of what you desire in your life.
0: Thank you so much, Allison. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Thank you again, Dr. Leonard. I, I had a great time.